Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 31. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of this chapter together this evening. Before hearing from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, we give you thanks for the wonder of your salvation, the peace that is ours because of our union with the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. We long to know him more, to grow in our love and affection for him, to grow in our devotion and obedience to him. May our services of worship always be God-centered and Christ-honoring. May they be filled with um, words that are true and right, with hearts and minds that desire to grow in greater submission to that loving authority that is over us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see more of Christ this evening, and it's in His name we pray. Amen. Stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. As we return this evening to our studies through the book of Exodus, we're approaching the end of another section in this book in which the Lord is about to send Moses down from the mountain with all that he has been teaching him. We will soon come in the very next chapter, chapter 32, to that very dark incidence of the golden calf. But for now, for the last 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord has miraculously sustained Moses on top of Mount Sinai, and he has been receiving from the Lord in audible voice all sorts of instructions surrounding the tabernacle, its furnishings, the garments of the priest with that special emphasis being on the high priest's garments and that consecration ceremony as the priesthood is established. And so, for seven chapters now, we've been reading about all sorts of intricate details, verbal blueprints, we might say, from the Lord in how everything is to be made. Now, of course, we don't know this for certain, but we could imagine Moses being somewhat overwhelmed with all of this, perhaps thinking to himself, how is all of this going to happen? This all sounds wonderful, but I don't have the ability to make all of these things. Who is going to do all of this stuff? Or perhaps when Moses descends from the mountain of the Lord and tells the people what the Lord has instructed, they begin to wonder, well, who is it among us who has the ability to do these things? 
And so what we find here in Exodus 31 is God in His kindness anticipating any sort of apprehension by revealing the names of these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, who will undertake the leadership of this project, men who are called by God and men who are equipped by Him with the needed gifts and abilities to do that which they are charged with. Now, with any text of Scripture, it's important to give our attention to the primary person or the main character of the text of Scripture, who is, of course, the Lord God Himself, wherever we might be reading or studying. And so, we could ask ourselves questions in a text like this, not so much what do we learn about these men, so much as what do we learn about the God who equips these men, the God who appoints these men and gives them the ability to do what He calls them to do. And so, first this evening, we learn that the Lord is the one who gives gifts to His people. And so, that's our first point this evening. God is the giver of gifts. He is the giver of all gifts. He is the giver of good gifts. I suppose if we were to imagine what would be the alternatives of the Lord appointing these two men to take on the leadership of this particular project, God could have simply made the tabernacle Himself by divine fiat, could have brought down from heaven the completed structure. That certainly was in His capability to do that. There are many pagan nations that taught that, that their deities provided those temples of worship from on high. The Lord could have equipped Moses or Aaron, perhaps, for this task. But I think there's something wonderful for us to learn in the fact that the Lord equips other men to help share in the load of this project. And so, whether it's the needed leadership over the nation of Israel or now this construction project, there is no single person who can undertake all that is needed to shoulder the load or to carry the weight or to bear the burden of all things. No one has the ability to do everything apart from the Lord Jesus Himself because of our own natural finitude and weakness. Now, while we're reading here about the Lord giving certain gifts for this construction project, in our time together this evening, I want us to think a little bit more broadly, even into our own lives, to the principle that God is the one who gives gifts to His people. He gives gifts even today to each of us within the local church. And so, let's take some time and look at some New Testament texts that teach us about differing gifts from the Lord. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 12, if you'd like to turn there with me in your Bibles. We'll look at Romans chapter 12, in case you pass Romans 12 on the way, you can just hold your spot there. And then we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 4. These are all texts that teach us how the Lord equips and why He equips His people within the local church. It's at 1 Corinthians 12, let's begin in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. 
And then back to Romans chapter 12. Begin there in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then finally, First Peter chapter 4. Verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So whether in these New Testament texts, and we could add more to them, or in Exodus chapter 31, there really is a common theme to all of this, that it is God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit who is the giver of gifts. There are a variety of gifts, and the purpose of those gifts is to honor the Lord by serving one another, that others might be edified, that others might be built up toward maturity. And so gifts that the Lord has given to us are not to be hoarded. The very nature of a gift is that it is, of course, to be open and used and enjoyed for others. Now, maybe you've been part of a church in the past in which there was a great emphasis placed upon spiritual gifts and finding those spiritual gifts. Maybe you were encouraged to take some sort of a spiritual gifts test or some sort of assessment of inventory of your natural abilities and temperaments, your availability, and other resources that God has given to you. I did just a cursory Google search which revealed a seemingly endless supply of resources on spiritual gifts, everything from books to seminars and more, all sorts of resources to help you discover what those gifts might be. And in an age in which everything is sort of relegated to the professional, you can sign up for all sorts of seminars to help you. Some people are certainly making a lot of money tapping into the spiritual gift market. Maybe that's their spiritual gift is making money off of spiritual gifts. Now, of course, there might be some benefit from taking time and growing in self-awareness and assessment of what those gifts and abilities might be, but sometimes it can feel very confusing. It can have sort of a formulaic feeling to it. On the one hand, we might think, well, these are spiritual gifts, and so Is there a level of mysticism and sort of unexplainable nature to them? You might take a test, and perhaps it indicates that your gift should be to help in the nursery. You do that a handful of times and realize, I am an impatient person. But I took the test, and now I'm locked in. And so I think we want to be careful in presuming that if I just took the right test or attended the right seminar, then I would figure out what I'm supposed to do within the local church. 
It doesn't quite work like that. It's interesting in a lot of those texts, you'll find that, well, there are seven or 12, some sort of definite finite number of gifts that you're supposed to choose from or perhaps see which of those jumps off the page and is the best description of you. But I think it's worth noting when the Apostle Paul lists different spiritual gifts, as it were, gifts within the church, they're not identical lists. And I don't think we're meant to see this as an exhaustive list of gifts, as though you're just supposed to pick one of them that's there. But I think this is just meant to give us a sample of all the different types of various gifts that the Lord might give to His people within the church. But however many gifts there might be, and we'll come back to that more in a moment, the point here is to see that God is the one who is the giver of those gifts. And notice here in verse 3 how the Lord equips these men. In order to prepare them for this construction project, the Lord gives to them, notice there again in verse 3, He gives to them ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. Now, these four attributes can be understood as two pairs in a chiastic structure. In other words, we could think of these gifts in two broad categories, gifts that equip the inner man and gifts that equip the outer man. So, there are things like knowledge and intelligence. These are gifts that fill the mind and direct the heart. And then there's the implementation of those gifts in abilities and craftsmanship. You might think here of things like dexterity and skillfulness. But the emphasis in all of these gifts is really upon wisdom. And wisdom is the God-given and God-oriented ability to understand what is needed and how to go about the task at hand. And wisdom is not something that can simply be learned in a classroom or picked up in a workshop. But true wisdom is something that comes from the heart, a heart which is ultimately ruled by the Lord Jesus. Now, just think of some of the different areas in which wisdom is going to be needed for this construction project. There's the collecting of all the needed materials. There's inventorying those raw materials and then storing those things properly to protect them from the elements. There's learning to delegate tasks and then further subtasks to others within the workforce. There's the ability that's needed to teach others. We find later in Exodus 35, Moses points out there that the Lord has inspired these men to teach. That's part of the wisdom that they are equipped with is to teach others. There's the gathering of all the proper tools and keeping track of those things and using them properly. There's being a good project manager being able to look at the entire big picture of things, to know what is best to come first, second, and so forth, and then communicating that to everyone so that they're not overwhelmed. There's wisdom that's needed to handle conflicts when those will inevitably arise among the workforce. There's the need to be patient with others and model patience for others. There's encouraging the workforce to keep their focus upon the Lord. And there's helping that workforce to maintain a proper balance between work and rest. This is a project unlike any other undertaken by God's people. And so this is why something much more than technical skills is needed. I've talked with friends who are in construction who will tell me that they have met some of the most skilled carpenters and tile workers and painters who cannot seem to keep a job because they lack wisdom. 
And this is why I think it's important for us to see that the emphasis is not so much upon technical proficiency, but the emphasis is upon that God-given gift of wisdom. Verse 6 literally reads, in those that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom. And so true wisdom is something that the Lord places within the heart, that the Lord grows within the heart and comes from a heart that is ruled by the Spirit of Christ. And so all of these things like intelligence, aptitude, skill, knowledge, ability, working, laboring, God is the source of all that is needed, not only equipping with skill and craftsmanship, but working within the heart so that they are laboring for the honor and glory of God. And really, isn't that the charge for all of God's people, regardless of what task it is that we undertake, whether you're a student or in full-time vocation, in some field of labor, whatever it might be, the Word of God is clear. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, even down to those menial everyday tasks, do it all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it heartily as unto the Lord, not for men. And so, we do what we do because God is the one who has given to us gifts and abilities, and we are merely stewards of that which God has entrusted to us. And we also learn here, secondly, that the Lord gives a variety of gifts. Not only is He the source, the one who gives gifts to His people, but He gives a variety of gifts, equipping His people in so many different and varied ways. And the Lord takes these gifts and He spreads them out among His people. There is no one single person who can do all things, either with this tabernacle project or even within the church today. Now, certainly Moses was gifted, and he was equipped for various areas of leadership and shepherding. But even Moses can't do it all. You might think back to Exodus chapter 18 when Moses' father-in-law Jethro came and saw Moses hearing the cases of the people from morning to night and wisely told them that he would burn himself out if he did not get help. And so there were elders appointed to help shoulder that load. And then we learn later that the entire tribe of Levi is given that task of taking on the priestly responsibilities, sharing that heavy load among them. And now, it's not just these two men here, Bezalel and Aholiab, who do all of the work. We learn in verse 6 that the Lord will gift other able men for this task. And again, in chapter 35, we'll find there that the Lord is at work in the hearts of all of the people. He's at work in the hearts of the people to contribute generously in some particular way. He moves in the hearts of skillful women to make the yarn and linen that's needed. In fact, the people collectively are so moved to contribute that they are told to stop giving because they have enough for this project. Wouldn't that be a wonderful problem to have? I was just thinking over the last number of years how wonderful the Lord has been to provide for our own church family here all of the different building projects that we have undertaken, and wonderful to see the Lord's kindness in such provision. But just think of all the skills needed to complete this massive project. 
from carpentry to metallurgy, from sewing to embroidery to working with precious gems, cutting and engraving and affixing those to the garments, even the mixing of anointing oil and incense. And just as the Lord spreads all these various gifts among the people to perform all of these tasks, there are in the same way numerous gifts that the Spirit continues to spread among His people within the local church today. As the Apostle Paul teaches, again, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, using that analogy of the body, that there are various gifts that are from one source, that one divine source of the Spirit. And if the Spirit is the one who gives those gifts, then we have no right to say that some gifts are more important than another because the Spirit deems them all essential for working together within the body of Christ. No one should ever think of himself or herself as more or less important than another. Now, certainly some gifts are more visible than others, but just think about how many serving-type gifts are needed within a local church. You might think of visiting the sick or the shut-in, sending a note of encouragement to those who are grieving, praying diligently and faithfully for the needs among our own church family and needs around the world, taking a meal to someone who's recovering from surgery, driving someone to a doctor's appointment, watching a young mom's children while her husband is away for work out of town, helping in the sound booth, using your musical abilities, serving in the nursery, fixing something for a single mom or for someone elderly who's on a limited budget, attentiveness to the needs of others, befriending the lonely, taking minutes in a committee meeting to help things run smoothly, helping to balance a budget, and giving generously out of what the Lord has given to you, out of the abundance of His blessing. There really is no end to the ways in which we can serve one another and help one another. But perhaps that question still comes to mind for you. Okay, if I'm not to take some sort of a test or go to a seminar to figure out what my gift might be, how do I go about discovering those particular gifts that perhaps the Lord has equipped me with? And if I think these are my gifts, well, how can I go about growing and maturing in those areas of service? Well, again, it's not a mystical thing. It's not something that the Holy Spirit just downloads to us one day. But here are a few key words to identify those gifts. We might think of four key words. Think, listen, pray, and participate. Think. Think of the desires that the Lord has given to you. Think about the different abilities and skills that you have already. It's okay to speak of natural gifts or abilities as we acknowledge that all of those things are from the Lord. And then think about how those natural abilities might be developed in service to Christ Jesus. And then listen. Listen for needs as they arise within the church around you. Pay attention to the announcements that are made on Sunday morning. Pay attention to the weekly emails that come from the church office in which needs might arise and be communicated to our church family. You might think about listening to the encouragement of another who sees various abilities and gifts in you and encourages you in some direction of service. And then pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would make known to you how to serve and would enable you to help others. 
pray that you would have a godly desire and a humble heart, that your service in some area would not be to promote your own agenda or just bring about change the way in which you think it should happen. The point there is to think and pray selflessly, not selfishly, asking the Lord to help you use your talents and resources and abilities to His honor and loving others. And then participate. Don't sit back and let others just be the ones who are serving in a local church, but participate by perhaps even trying different things, maybe things that you never really thought about before to see how the Lord might lead and direct. I can think of a friend who was a very skilled physician before coming to know the Lord, and as he looks back, he can see that the Lord gave him those natural abilities even though he did not profess faith in Christ, but he saw that those were something that were a gift from God. What do you have that you did not receive? But once coming to faith in Christ, it didn't necessarily add to his technical proficiency, but his union with Christ completely transformed the way that he thought of those gifts. And now we now wanted to use those gifts to honor the Lord and serve other people in new and different ways. Perhaps these men in Exodus 31 already had some level of God-given talent and ability that the Lord then adds to or further equips them for this task at hand. Perhaps when these two men are mentioned by name to Moses, Bezalel and Aholiab, Moses thinks to himself, of course, what perfect selection. Calvin writes, God had already given a level of acuteness and intelligence to these men. Their dexterity was the seed, and now the Lord promises to bring to growth in a greater manner. And so, again, it's not so much about taking a test to figure out where your gifts are. If you're young, even if you're middle school age, around that age, it's not waiting until you get older to figure out where you should serve. But really, it's about growing in your life to be ruled more and more by the Spirit of Christ, submitting to the indwelling Word of God and thinking of others with humility and striving to grow in humility within your own heart. And I think this really is the key point. If you take nothing away this evening, hear this, to ask yourself, how is my life being governed by the rule of Christ? And as my life, mind and heart are being more and more subdued to the rule of Christ Jesus, how does that reflect in my life in areas of service and care for one another? And as the Word of God fills my mind and rules my heart and governs the things that I do more and more, then I become better equipped to take those promises of God's Word and the truth of Scripture and offer words of comfort, encouragement, and even loving correction to another. And one more thing for us to think about this evening, and that is the Lord gives gifts for a purpose. So, the Lord is the giver of all gifts, He gives a variety of gifts, and He gives gifts for a purpose. Now, here in Exodus 31, we could say that the most obvious purpose is the construction of this project, but there really is a larger purpose because it's not just about making a beautiful structure so that those who pass by marvel at the craftsmanship that is reflected in this. 
But think about something like the lampstand. It's not so much looking at those who perhaps made that particular piece of furnishings within the tabernacle and acknowledging them, but it's the makers of that wanting the people of God to see that it is their Savior who is the light of the world. It's not so much about having a grasp of the heating temperatures for making the burnt or making the bronze altar for burnt offerings so that it doesn't melt under the high heat so that it holds the weight of the sacrifice placed upon it, but it's making that thing so that the people see the need for a final sacrifice in the Lord's provision for atonement. It's not about the beautiful aroma of incense placed upon that altar in the holy place so that the people are being complimented upon their abilities, but it's helping the people of Israel to understand that as that all-sufficient sacrifice comes, their prayers are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so the purpose, in other words, is not for the artisan himself or herself to be praised, but it is for the Lord to be honored and worshiped. Now, you know this to be true in your own life when you serve the Lord in different ways, when we do so with the right motive. And of course, motives can be complicated and multifaceted and sometimes hard for us to completely understand. But for those who are believers in Christ, we can have the right motive in our service to Christ Jesus. And when our motives are right, we don't really care about being complimented by others. We don't care about recognition, but we want the Lord Jesus to be honored and glorified and worshiped. And so, if you can help in the nursery on an hour on a Sunday evening so that young parents can be together with God's people and focus upon the teaching of God's Word and sing praises to His name, you are helping to aid in the maturity of another. If you give of your time to prepare for a Sunday school lesson on Sunday morning, the reward is that young lives and hearts are being shown Jesus. Now, the purpose of gifts, as we saw explicitly from those New Testament passages, the purpose of those gifts is to build one another up that we might grow in wisdom, that we might grow in maturity, that we might know more of Christ, and that others would see more of Christ among us. We long to help one another. We long to serve each other. We long to show love toward one another because the love of God has so filled our hearts that we long for our Savior to be exalted. Remember when Jesus said to His disciples, in the upper room in John chapter 13, after he had washed their feet, giving them that example of service, he says to them, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so it's all about Christ Jesus our Lord. It's all about using gifts, talents, abilities, in whatever measure we have them for the glory of God. It's all about the fruit of the gospel of sovereign grace being made more and more evident among us so that others, when they come and either worship with us or perhaps fellowship with them in some setting, that they cannot help but say, there is something different about those people, that it is the love of Christ that is evident among them. And we might say that the motive of our hearts is absolutely critical 
when we think about exercising the gifts that the Lord has given to us. Checking our motives is essential as we seek to identify what sort of gifts God has given. John Murray writes, if we consider ourselves to possess gifts we do not have, then we have an inflated notion of our place and function. And so you see, when we perhaps grasp for a position that is not ours, when we maybe become envious or jealous of someone in a more visible position of leadership than we are, when we have a particular agenda that we are hoping to impose, when we have zeal with self-oriented ambitions, or if we have an inaccurate self-assessment, we can do great damage to relationships with others, and we can do harm within the local church. Albert Martin, who's writing here about pastoral ministry, but I think this has application to any area of service within, within the church. Martin writes, because of natural pride and the deceitfulness of our hearts, we can have a distorted and inaccurate assessment of who we are and what gifts and graces we actually possess. True spirituality, Martin says, is measured not in terms of great giftedness in public ministry, but in practical Christ-likeness, manifested in the horizontal relationships where God has sovereignly placed us. And I think that's a wonderful application of some of these things that we're talking about this evening, that as we focus more, first and foremost, in our own lives about growing in Christ-likeness, then this becomes the genuine desire of our hearts. And we will trust that this is the place where God has placed us, and we will look to humble ourselves and serve as those needs are made evidence, growing in our love for one another. And so, as you reflect upon the motives of your own heart, we want to put it like this. Know where you are strong and can serve other people, but know also where you are weak and might need others to serve you. And one final thing to note about these two men, and that is their names and their tribes. The names of these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, really, I think, is instructive to us on how we should think of our own labor and service within the church. Bezalel's name, literally translated, is in the shadow of God, which indicates the purpose for which this man labors, that is, under the protection of God, and not for his own glory, but for the glory of his God. Just think about him working on the job site. Every time someone calls out to his name, he can be reminded that this is labor that is done for the glory of God under the shadow, the protection of the Lord who will continue to guide him in his calling. And Aholiab's name means my tent is the Father God. It is the Lord God who is the tent, that is the covering or the shelter of his people just as Aholiab helps with the construction of that tent of meeting. Well, what about the tribes of these two men? The tribe of Judah, that's the tribe that Bezalel is from, that one makes sense to us, doesn't it? It's that kingly tribe as it becomes more and more evident as we move along in redemptive history. But why the tribe of Dan? At this point, a relatively obscure tribe, a tribe that's is less than flattering as we move along in redemptive history. 
Well, Calvin says, perhaps in taking this man from the tribe of Dan, it is to illustrate that the grace of God is for all people. A.W. Pink points out, well, perhaps it's a type of inclusio among the people. By that, he simply means this, that when instruction is given to the nation of Israel on how they are to arrange themselves as they march through the wilderness, it's the tribe of Judah that is to lead the way, and it is the tribe of Dan that is to bring up the rear. And so perhaps by having two men from the beginning and from the end, it's again a way to see that all of God's people are to give in service. And in fact, all of God's people will see later contribute to the construction of this project. And so while ultimately it is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who possesses all gifts and abilities and wisdom in perfection, the charge that is before us is to grow in our knowledge and love of Christ And as we seek to build one another up, we long for the rule of the Spirit of Christ to be made more and more evident among us as we seek to encourage one another to press on toward that glorious day. And so may that same Spirit be actively at work among us here in this place as we seek to love one another and as we seek to serve one another, all for the honor and glory of our risen and reigning Savior.